Our scripture today comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Today, we are talking about the intercession of Jesus. Um, Intercession is basically this idea of pleading someone else's case. It's an intervention of sorts between two unreconciled parties. We use the language of intercession when we talk about praying for others, and I think we get to the heart of intercession when we combine that work on behalf of another with the idea of mediation. So intercession is standing in the gap between two unreconciled parties with the hope that we're going to bring them together. Now, historically, all over the globe, in every culture that we have historical data from, in every age that we have historical data from, the most visible and important intercessory role, the most important mediatorial role, is the role of priests. Three quick points to guide us as we look at this idea of the intercession of Jesus today. Three quick points. First, I want us to look at the priests of our culture. Second, at the intercession of Jesus. And then third, the assurance of his love. The priests of our culture, the intercession of Jesus, and the assurance of his love. So first, let's look at the priests of our culture and what I mean by that. Like I said, no matter the geographic location, we've got historical artifacts and documents talking about the priestly class of people and the way that they mediated the relationship between their people and their gods. We've got that all over the world. So you've got Icelandic chieftains who functioned as priests and made sacrifices to Norse gods. You've got Shinto priests in Japan who maintain shrines and act as a kind of medium at times. And you've got Taoist priests who act as fortune tellers. And you've got priests working within the Greek and Roman myth mythological world and the gods therein. You've got priests making offerings on behalf of Pharaoh, who is either the king or the queen of Egypt. And then you've got Hindu temple priests. You've got Buddhist priests. You've got monks. Like I said, all over for all of time. But here's what I'm really getting at when I say this. Regardless of the location around the world, deep within humanity's innermost being is the understanding that we cannot freely come before a god or the gods and that we need a mediator. We need a priest or someone like that to make intercession on our behalf. And those cultures and beliefs that have held this to be true are not wrong. Now just think about it for a moment in the world that we live in. If the priests in all of these religious worldviews and all these various spiritualities acted as interpreters and manipulators of the will of the gods, who are our cultural priests today? 
right? Without disregarding all the religious worldviews around us, like those that I just mentioned and a whole host more, who are the authorities of secular culture who determine what is right and wrong and how we are to live? Who is interpreting that for us today? Historically, that's been the role of the priests. Who determines how we are supposed to relate to each other? Who determines if we are in or if we are out? Who determines if we are accepted or if we are canceled? And today, if you transgress one of our cultural laws set by the priestly class of secular culture, how do you appease the wrath of their judgment? Is there even an opportunity for redemption and forgiveness, or are you just done? And there's a guy named Philip Reef who's done work on the topic of culture, and he talks about it as common or corporately assumed pattern of moral demands, a range of standard self-expectations about what we may and may not do in the face of infinite possibilities. See, what has happened in our broader Western culture as we've shifted away from religious morality is that we have filled that vacuum with what have become new moral demands that every citizen needs to believe and abide by. And if you don't, you risk the cultural excommunication of being canceled. He goes on to say, deep cultural changes occur when there are changes in the moral demand system. Okay, this is not new. You may just feel this a little more acutely today than you did 10 years ago. That means a cultural shift is a shift in the law of what is commonly accepted and what is commonly rejected. And if you want a seat around the cultural table, you need to keep up with these changes or you find yourself rejected and outside of the camp. Now, Peter Lightheart wrote a helpful article on this called The Priest of Culture, where he says, A cultural revolution, then, not only involves a change in the symbolic of moral demands, but a change in priesthood. Now, all of the changes happening around us in the world around us right now are not bad. Not all of them are necessarily bad. We're doing a three-week series of messages at the end of September and the beginning of October on what it means to be a good neighbor in a transient and disconnected and racially charged world. We're going to talk about what the Bible says about being neighbors in a time of conflict. We're going to talk about uh, racial injustice and our hope and our uh, vision for reconciliation. And then we're going to talk about why cancel culture is antithetical to the gospel. But if cultural changes result in a change in the cultural priesthood, and if the moral expectations of our culture are shifting as they are, how does one know how to be accepted? How do you know how to be accepted? Who is our cultural mediator? Who is interceding for us? Who sets the standard of right and wrong? Who interprets that for us? What is the foundation of our acceptance in the midst of the ebbs and the flows and the tidal changes of our culture? See, that uncertainty itself right there, not understanding how to be accepted, that uncertainty is contributing to why we live in the most anxiety-filled generation that has ever existed. People do not know how to have their guilt lifted and have their sin forgiven. Because cultural sins keep changing, and the guilt never goes away. It just keeps compounding, and the weight of it is actually crushing. So if you are trying to worship at the altar of the cultural priests of today, you will not find any of those priests lifting the burden from you. You will never please the cultural priests of today. 
There is no limit to the sacrifices that are demanded to be accepted. It's no longer good enough just to acknowledge the agency of somebody to believe and live differently than we may live and believe. The cultural priests of, to, of today demand some celebration around their ideals. And if you won't celebrate their ideals, you're out. And when your friends and your family and your coworkers finally get to the point of exhaustion and they begin to give up, it's going to happen sooner than you probably think. Christ City, we have good news for them. First, Tim First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, we have a once and for all mediator, a once and for all intercessor, who sits at the right hand of the Father as a guarantee of our acceptance in him. He's the great high priest who not only tells us how to live, but makes a way for our acceptance before the throne of God. His name is Jesus. See, the priests of our culture demand more from us than we can give, but Jesus is not like that. We need to look at the intercession of Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, I want you to see the past and the present realities of this passage. It says God did not spare his own son, pointing to the past action of the life and death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. It says he gave him up for us all. Again, pointing to the past atoning work of Jesus. This justifying and atoning work of Jesus occurred in the past when Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve in our place and for our sin it's in the past in the sense that it has already been accomplished. God the Father sent God the Son to accomplish all that we would ever need to be saved. And when Jesus was crucified and he died upon the cross, he cried out, Tetelestai, which is, it is finished. On the cross, Jesus finished all that we would ever need to be saved. And he gave us a pathway to be brought into right relationship to God. Verse 33 says, it is God who justifies. That justifying work, that atonement, that substitutionary work of Jesus, that ransom price that he paid as our once and for all Savior, all of that is the first part of the intercession of Jesus that makes a way here for what we see as the present or second part. Let me show you again. Verse 33, look at this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. See, we talk a lot about the work of Jesus back then, right? And he made a way for us to enter into eternal life. And we should make a big deal about that. But we should not make a big deal about that to the neglect of talking about what Jesus is doing now on our behalf. 
He's at the right hand of the Father where he is seated in resurrected glory. See, a lot of us, I think for a lot of us, when we look at Jesus and what he did in the past, we're so thankful for it, but we don't always consider what he's doing right now in the present. See, justification is tied to what Christ did in the past, whereas intercession is what he is doing in the present. Think of it like this. I married Allison almost 17 years ago. On that day, on the day of our wedding, I made vows to her that for the rest of my life, I would love and serve her as Christ loves and serves his church. The vows that I made are binding. They are so strong that there should never be any question about the commitment that I made to her. 17 years ago, I declared that my love for her transcends and will transcend all of the experiences and problems of life and that nothing should separate us until death, right? Until death do us part. So I said I loved her. I made vows before God to her, to God, but before God and witnesses, I I committed to loving her. But what if that was the last time I told her I loved her? Right, that I said you, uh, I told you that I love you on the day of our wedding, and if it ever changes, I'll let you know. Like, that's not a way to live in a marriage. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've repented of sin and you seek to live for him and obey his commands, you can look back at the cross and you can be assured of God's love for you. And you should do that. You should glory in that and revel in that. But wouldn't it be terrible if that's all you ever felt and knew? Like if that was the totality of your experience of his love, there'd be something missing. See, the intercession of Jesus applies what the cross accomplished in every nanosecond in our life. The intercession of Jesus applies what the cross accomplished, and he does this in every nanosecond of our being. Jesus' work on the cross is a massive revelation of the love that God has for the world, but the intercession of Jesus applies that love to our lives in real time. On the cross, we see and know the depth of the love of God, but Jesus' ongoing intercession is kind of like a husband telling his wife that he loves her every moment of every day for all of eternity. This is the love that our whole world longs for. It's applied to our hearts through Jesus' priestly intercession for all time. If we had maybe just a view of God who had lived and died and resurrected, we'd be really, really tempted, and that was the end of the story, we'd be really, really tempted to think mechanistically or even formulaically about the Christian faith. We would then never experience the fullness of his relational heart for us. See, we might wonder what the priests of our culture will demand from us next, you know, for us to be welcomed and accepted. But in Christ, we have a high priest who is never changing. My acceptance before the throne of God is not based on how well I perform or how perfectly I live. That's moralism, and it's actually an affront to the gospel. My acceptance before the throne of God is based on the past performance of my great high priest, who is now risen and seated in glory at the right hand of the Father, where he is presently advocating for me, interceding for me, declaring that there has been a way where I can be made right with God, and then applying that to my heart all the time in relationship. 
See, the intercession of Christ is his heart connecting my heart to the Father's heart and drawing us together. All of the cultures that knew that there was no way that they could get to God on their own, who knew that they needed someone to mediate that relationship, they were all correct. But no mere priest could ever accomplish that massive goal. Only Jesus can because only Jesus laid down his life as the accepted price of our salvation. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 23 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, Jesus is a, is a totally different kind of priest. He always lives to make intercession for us. In his incarnation, Jesus was always praying for his disciples. We see the story in Luke 22 where Jesus says, Hey, Peter, Satan sought to have you, to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith might not fail. John chapter 17, we see Jesus praying. He's telling his disciples before this, like, you are going to have difficulties. There are going to be problems that come. And, and he knew that his disciples were going to be scattered into different directions, into different things. But he said, I'm praying for you that you may be one as I and the Father are one. He lives now and continues to intercede for us. Mark Jones said, since Christ always lives, he always intercedes. There is no Christian alive who has not had Christ mention his or her name to the Father. Indeed, if you are a Christian, it is precisely because the Son presented your name to his and now your Father. That's a mind-bending reality that the one who is holding the cosmos together the one who created all and is redeeming all things, speaks of you before the Father. And his ongoing intercession, his continual act of bringing us before God as our perfect advocate, 1 John chapter 2, means that he saves us to the uttermost. Dane Ortland said, to the uttermost in Hebrews 7.25 means God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls, those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost and he saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. And you sit and take this in and you think to yourself, maybe, how can I be assured of that? Jesus is alive. He is risen and reigning and ruling over all things and he lives to make intercession for you. He lives to apply and then reapply the truth of the gospel to your heart to give you that assurance that you are his and he is yours and that that union will not be broken. 
First, we see the priests of our culture who are so unlike Christ, who demand more from us than we can give, but we see that Jesus is not like that, that he graciously gave what we could not. Second, we've seen the intercession of Jesus, how he takes his atoning work on the cross and he uh, applies that to our hearts even as he lives to make intercession for us so that, listen, so that we would know, third, the assurance of his love. Go again to Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome, he says in the letter, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? His answer is a bold declaration. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one, no thing. No tribulation, no distress, no persecution, no famine, no nakedness, no danger, no sword, no virus, no pandemic, no bankruptcy, not death, nor life, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation. No one and no thing will ever be able to separate you who are in Christ from the love of God. No one, no way, no how. How do you know? Because he lives to make intercession for you. We look back upon what he has accomplished for us in the cross and what he has accomplished for us in the resurrection. But we can know and experience and sense and feel and understand, comprehend the greatness and grandeur of God that he lives at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us. See, there's lots of great intercessors in the Bible. We see someone like Abraham who intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah. We see someone like Moses who intercedes for the children of Israel. We see someone like David who intercedes for his family members and for his kingdom. We see someone like Daniel who intercedes on behalf of his people that they would come to the end of their exile. And we see wondrous things in all of these examples in Scripture. But I can tell you, Abraham interceded, yes, in prayer, but he did not offer to lay his life down for for the salvation of Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses, similarly, he did not bring the people into the promised land. David failed in tremendous ways. And Daniel was an old man in exile who saw God answer his prayers. All through the scriptures, we see wondrous examples of intercessors, but none who were willing to lay their lives down for their people. It's who we have in Jesus. And he is presently interceding for you before the Father, seeking to apply the truth of the gospel to your heart afresh and anew, even in this very moment. As we prepare to celebrate communion together, we prepare the bread and the wine 
And the glorious thing in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, and he says that every time we celebrate this, the bread and the wine, we are proclaiming the gospel until he comes because we have a living Savior who is in resurrected glory interceding on your behalf. The broken bread points us to the broken body of Jesus. The cup of wine or juice points us to the blood that he shed to ransom us, to bring us into relationship with our Father, now and forevermore. If you're a follower of Jesus, celebrate this glorious truth by partaking of the bread and the wine. If you're not a follower of Jesus, just leave that off. It's something that we celebrate because we have already anchored all of our hope, all of our trust in the sufficiency of Jesus' work on our behalf. Let me pray. Father, I pray right now that you would make us aware of your goodness to us in Christ. We pray, come Holy Spirit, reveal the truth of the gospel to us once again. Apply it to our hearts in those deep crevices where we hide, where the sin that remains and lingers troubles us. Help us to unearth those things and bring them into the light that you might heal them and forgive them. But Father, more than anything else, I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would make us a good news people in a city that so desperately needs it. May we be able to point to the great high priest Jesus with all of our hearts and direct people to the one who actually lifts their burdens and provides a way for them to find it, find their way home. This is our prayer. We pray it now in Jesus' magnificent name. Amen.